Amen. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. A few years back, I decided that I wanted to go back to school because I just like making bad choices, you know, put fiberglass in my eye and go back to school. And like, I was never good at math growing up either. And I thought, I'll get a degree in math. And it made sense at the time. But anyway, I, I've got a degree in financial math, and the big thing that they push when you get that kind of degree is how important compound interest is. Like the money that you invest when you're 20. Even though you, you make the least amount of money in your life probably when you're 20, you make way more when you're 60, but the money you invest when you're 20, it increases and it compounds to such an extent that the money that you invest when you're 20 will fund 60% of your retirement. Isn't that amazing? Even though you could put more in later, the little bit you put in early just grows, and then that bit grows, and the part that grew is going to grow again, and the part that grew is going to grow again. And then even though you make more money later in life, it doesn't catch up to the amount of money that has grown through compound interest early in life. It's kind of wild. And with money, like, it's easy to track that. Like, you can see percentages, and you could say, wow, it's, it's grown $500 today, or man, we've had a really bad day. What the heck is going on? And you can kind of see and track where your money has gone and how it's growing or how it's right now not growing and all that. But what's kind of harder to see, but what is equally true is there's things that we do every single day that accrue interest, that grow, that change. You know, Here's a quote by C.S. Lewis to kind of explain what I mean. C.S. Lewis says, Good and evil, good and evil, both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And an apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an, an attack that's otherwise impossible. And so we all get that idea, don't we, that evil increases with compound interest. Like you have a, a young man who's experienced trauma in some form, whether it's neglect or it's abuse or he got into alcohol or addiction, drugs, whatever, and that young man has a child and then that child experiences trauma and abuse and the effects of uh, alcoholism or addiction and then that child grows up kind of stunted in a lot of ways that a lot of studies show developmentally and he'll be at higher risk for heart disease and stroke and cancer and, and is going to have a harder time in life and then that child may not break out of those systems and then he's going to have multiple children who then won't break out of those systems and now you've got a big problem right we've all seen how evil can have this compound interest growth in it but you could also see how good can have compound interest like we have so many families in our church that i'm so thankful for who do just a tiny thing that you think this would not matter this is just a tiny little insignificant thing we have a family who goes to our church who are in the foster care system, and they got this little foster care kid. And uh, at, he's, he's very, very tiny. And at the age that he is, he should be able to run and jump and speak and yell and play and hug and kiss and do everything that a kid that age could. When they got him, he was so severely neglected that he couldn't talk, he didn't know how to walk, he could kind of crawl, 
Um, he didn't know how to hug or kiss, had never been shown that kind of affection, didn't understand it. Uh, it was, was just severely, severely stunted. It was almost like the kid was in a daze. Like you would talk to him, there, there was like, you couldn't really interact almost. They've had him for, I think, four months now. He can run, he can jump, he, he, he loves to kiss, he, uh, he, he loves to give high fives. Dude, and, and this part, like I was thinking about today, it, it makes me so emotional. Every morning they have this routine where they, 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 they do his hair and they just comb his hair and they, they make him look in the, wind, in the mirror and they say, oh, look how handsome you are. And he just beams. Like, he, like that kid had never been shown that kind of affection before. He's never been told that he's been wanted or loved or, or, I, or I'm happy you're here. Like none of that. And now that kid has the opportunity, has, because of this family pouring into him in the way that they have and loving him the way they have, he might be able to break out of the cycle his dad was in. He might not have to do the things that his parents did and it, won't that just explode? Won't that change everything? Won't he have a, an ability to speak to his kids and say, hey, we don't do stuff like that. It wrecked my parents. I just think about this little boy and I'm so thankful for the families that we have at Edgewater who say, oh, oh we're gonna invest in this. And right now, it just seems like a little thing. It just seems like a little thing to, to, to teach a kid to high five. It just seems like a little thing to talk to a kid about Jesus. It just seems like a little thing, but it so matters. In fact, it matters so much that Jesus says, hey, if you just give a cup of water to a kid, I'm gonna remember it. Isn't that rad? And so you think about this family and I'm thinking, phew, if I'm, I'm thankfully I'm not compared to you when we stand before the king because you're miles ahead of me, man. It's amazing. So today, I bring that up today because we're gonna be looking at a chapter where you've, you're gonna see some compounding interest where earlier in 1 Samuel, there were some things that were done and things that were said and, and things put into motion that have accrued. And now some things are coming to a head and you're gonna see really the the long-term effects of, of the compounding interest of evil, like even in Saul's life. Saul is dead, but the, the sin that he was in has set issues and motions that will be problems for generations. It's a huge bummer. And really, we could do that to our kids if we're not careful. And that's why I think chapters like this are so important to look at and reflect on and say, okay, Jesus, what do you have for me in this? So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So Saul is dead. God has declared that David is going to be king, but there's still this political system that's in place. There's still people who are in places of influence and of power who want to maintain control the way that they had it. And so there's a war that persists after Saul is dead to even get David on the throne. So that's where we're at right now. There's, this, there's a long war happening, several years. Saul is dead, his house, his hold on power is getting weaker and weaker, whereas David's is getting stronger and stronger. So that's where we're coming in. In verse two, and sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahonam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, 
the son of Makkah, the daughter of Tamai, king of Geshur. And the first, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, I'm trying, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethrium of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So his firstborn, his name is Amnon. And this kid is a bummer. Like we'll see later in the story that he ends up becoming infatuated with his stepsister. He ends up raping her. And all of this kind of drama that comes from this kid, it all happens on the heels of the news coming out about David and Bathsheba. That there's this scandal that's come out about his dad. And right after that story comes out, now you've got the story of Amnon raping his stepsister. And so it's possible that, you know, David's kids are growing up in a home where, hey, David can do whatever he wants. You know, like there's, there's a way that we can talk to our kids and say, hey, this is the life that we're supposed to live. This is the way that we do things. And then there's a way that we live that might not look like the things that we said. And our kids are gonna be watching the things that we do. And so it's very possible that he grew up in a home where David says, this is how things are and this is how we ought to live. And they go to church and hear these things. But David is living a life contrary to that. And it could be that the kids look at him and go, well, he can do whatever he wants and I'm his kid, so maybe I can do whatever I want. And so it just makes me wonder, like, how many times do I say to my kids, hey, we don't say hate, because I've got a six-year-old, right? We don't say hate. We don't say that in this home. Or we don't say stupid. Or we don't say, we don't talk to your mom that way. But then at the same time, they live in a home where I have no problem saying hate. Oh, I, I hate raisins. It's fine when dad does it, but not when the kids do it. And then maybe I don't watch my tone with my wife. Maybe I get irritable. Maybe I get irritated. But then I get irritated at my kids when they talk to my wife that way. Does that make any sense? Right? It makes me wonder when I look at this and I go, man, his kid was a bummer. Am I being the kind of dad who's raising my kids in that same way where I am teaching them that it's okay to be harsh, that it's okay to not be generous with forgiveness? Or am I living the way that I'm telling them they should live? Because kids are going to be watching you no matter how old you and I get. And the way that you and I live, it, it, it speaks so much louder than the words that we say. And so you might think, well, man, what if I'm in too deep? What if I've been doing this for way too long? I don't have a six-year-old. I've got kids who are out of the house now. Have I missed my opportunity? Because my kids have already seen me living a life in a certain way where now that I, maybe I didn't know Jesus before, or maybe... It, Things have changed with me and I'm realizing now all stuff that has happened in the past. What do I do? Here's what's so rad about the relationship that you and I have with Jesus. At any point, even tonight, you can choose to repent of the things that you've been doing and turn away from them. Repent means I acknowledge this thing is a bad system. This isn't working. This isn't what I should do. And I'm gonna turn away from that thing actively. And your kids, no matter how old you are, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna watch you. And they're going to notice, if, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're focusing on Jesus, and you're noticing those things that I was a part of, those things that I said, those things that I did, what I listened to, what I watched, what I sent my kids in text messages, what I posted online, any of that was not beneficial, was not helpful, was more hurtful than anything. And then you turn away from those things and, and, and have different conversations and share different stuff and watch different things and listen. To, your kids will notice 
and the note, they'll notice the change more than they'll notice you talking different more. They're gonna notice you living a life the way that you've been preaching more than you preaching more and not living that way. For me, this is just a big reminder. It's never too late. Your kids are always gonna be watching you. And the other son that I wanted to pour, pour out, point out, his name is Absalom. He's David's third kid. And Absalom's gonna be a big story here in the Bible. We're gonna get to focus a lot on him. And it's actually my favorite, I think it's my single favorite Old Testament story, especially when teaching kids, because it gets just this perfect idea across. To summarize, to summarize what happens, Absalom raises a nation against his dad and tries to get Israel to turn away from David because David has had a kid with Bathsheba whose name is Solomon, and David has promised the kingdom to Solomon. Naturally, his older sons aren't gonna be stoked about that, right? Because now this other kid gets to be king? That doesn't make sense. So Absalom raises a nation against his dad. And, and what happens to Absalom is there's in this battle, and he gets, he's got really long, beautiful hair, the Bible says. It's actually fascinating. He's, the Bible says from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, he was perfect. He's the most handsome, most perfect human being. And if that's hard for you to picture, you could just think of me, you know, if that helps, just with long hair. So he had long hair, the Bible said. And he's in this battle, and, and he's, he's running from Joab, who's David's general, and he gets his hair stuck in this tree, and Joab throws three spears, just go boom, 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 and pierces him to this tree, kills him. They pull him down, and they bury him, and they put a big rock over him. And this guy who wasn't a part of that, didn't see any of that happen, comes over and says, hey, guys, what are we doing? And they say, the battle's over. Someone needs to go tell the king. And this, his name's Ahimaz, and he's kind of a spaz. And he goes, can I go, can I go, can I go? And Joab says, no, we're gonna send Cushy. And the way you picture Cushy, he's got like Dorito dust all over him, and he's really slow. His shoes aren't, aren't tied. And the Bible says he walks in a straight line, like the most direct route to get from where they were at to David's kingdom to go tell him, hey, this is the news of what happened in the battle. And he goes a straight line there. After a few days, Ahimaz bothers Joab again, says, hey, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? And finally, Joab says, yeah, you can go. And Ahimaz, the Bible says, goes the long way around and gets there before the Cushite. He gets there before this dude. So he gets to the kingdom and he runs in and he goes, David, king, live forever. And David says, what's the news? What happened to my son? And he goes, you won. The battle is over. You're victorious. And David goes, I, I wasn't worried about winning or losing. I know I would win. What happened to my son? And him as it goes, I don't know. And so David says, get out of here and kicks him out. But the Cushite shows up and he's winded and he's out of breath. And he, he, got, he tripped a few times on his sandals and all that. And he, he gets inside and he says, oh, king, live, live forever. And he goes, what happened to my son? And he says, you were victorious. You won the war. It's over. And he goes, I know, but what happened to my son? And the Cushite says, your son is dead and your son is buried. And the Bible says that he gets to stay in the presence of the king. See, for you and me, the story so parallels what happens to us that we have a king who was perfect, not from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, but he was actually perfect, and he was pierced three times on a tree, and he was buried and had a rock laid over him. But what you and I know is, for Jesus, he rose again. And now, for any person who, when they stand before the great king over all of creation, when we stand in front of him, he's gonna ask the most important question of all time. 
do you know what happened to my son? And you're not judged on how fast you are, how smart you were, how much money you had, or how well you did things, or how, how well you could pronounce names in the Bible. You're gonna be judged off of, do you know what happened to the king's son? If yes, you get to stay in his presence. So it's just a phenomenal story. And that's an overview. We're gonna spend like six weeks in it. But that's like just the general overview. And I love to share that story with kids because that's all you need to know. That's everything. Do you know what happened to the king's son? If you can grab onto that, we can work on anything else. We can work on your attitude. We can work on respect. We can work on it. But do you know what happened to the king's son? Because first and foremost, you gotta grab that. You gotta know that. And any opportunity I have to talk about it, I will. So I thought, oh, his name is mentioned? That's fair game. So that's his third kid. Verse six while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Abner was a character that we got to learn a lot about last week. Um, politically, Abner's in a really great place. He's well-established. He's well-known. He's got a lot of influence. He's, able to, he, he's making himself strong in the house of Saul. And verse 7, now Saul who's dead now, had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ish-bosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? So Ishi, let's call him Ishi. Ishi is Saul's son. And he is, in, in a sense, sitting on the throne, acting as king right now. In a monarchy type system, he, he's the only son left. He's gonna be king. Well, what has happened is, He's next in line according to the old political system, but not by God to be king. And Ishi, he gets really suspicious of Abner. He's thinking Abner's setting himself up to puppeteer the system where I'm gonna be sitting on the throne, but he's gonna be in control. He's gonna be calling the shots. He's starting to get really suspicious of this guy. And so he makes an accusation against Abner. Whether or not it's true, we don't know. But the idea is that there's a, a woman who belonged to Saul. And that if Abner was with that woman, it, in a way it's him partaking in something that belonged to the king. He he's, has an equal right to it as the king has. He's, why wouldn't I have it? It's that kind of attitude. And so Ishi is really suspicious of Abner. And so he makes this accusation. He says, essentially saying, if you are doing this, you're equal in authority to the king, you're able to do things that only the king is allowed to do. This is a major accusation. And so in verse eight, when Abner hears of it, then Abner was very angry over the words of Ish-bosheth and said, am I a dog's head of Judah? Which if you're ever road raging and you need to just throw out a word, you dog's head of Judah, it's pretty good. Just have it in your back pocket. Your kids won't even get mad. Like they'll just, huh. To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Verse nine, God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom to the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel, and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ish-bosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So what Abner is saying is this thing you're accusing me of, you're accusing me of setting myself up politically to take over the throne and rule things, 
he's so shocked, so hurt by that accusation. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, we don't know, that he says, you think I'm switching sides? That's what he means by saying, am I a dog's head of Judah? Because Saul's a Benjamite, David's from Judah. He goes, are you, are you saying that I'm on their team? You know what, fine. I am gonna be on their team. I am gonna switch sides. I'm gonna make sure that David does get the throne. I'm gonna make sure David does end up in control. And here's what's so fascinating. He says, I will accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. Isn't that fascinating? I'm gonna make sure what happens is what God already promised for David. Saul's house and Abner up until this accusation they're holding on to something that they know God has said, hey, this isn't it. This isn't where we're headed. This isn't what we're doing. There's a different plan, but they're holding on to this thing that they know God has not blessed, God has not endorsed, but they're holding on to it. And can't we all do that? Can't we all know that God isn't in something, but we hold on to it with an iron grip? It could be a job. It could be a relationship that you're in. It could be stuff you watch, the things you, you look at, the things you listen to. We say, I know this isn't what God has for me. I know this isn't what God wants me to do. But we still hold on to it. We're still holding on to it. That's where Abner's at. Finally, Abner has this accusation against him and he goes, hey, you know what? I'm gonna make sure David gets it just like how God said he would get it. I just think it's so fascinating. And in myself, I wondered, man, do I do that same stuff? There's things in my life where I know, man, God didn't have that for me. I know this isn't stuff that I should be partaking in, participating in, doing, but I keep doing it. That's the kind of stuff where I have to go, okay, Jesus, I repent. I'm gonna give this thing to you. Will you help take this thing from me? Will you, will you in the Bible, there's this term, it's a hedge of protection. Have you ever heard that over-Christianized prayer? Lord, we just pray a hedge of protection around them. You ever heard that? The idea is this, that this hedge is like you're praying, Lord, I pray Oregon blackberry bushes around that sin, where every time they go to touch that thing, enter into that activity, participate in that thing, it's gonna hurt you, it's gonna scratch you, it's gonna prick you to where you go, I don't like doing that anymore. That's not fun anymore. That used to be fun, it's not fun anymore. That's the idea of the hedge of protection idea. And so you could just pray, God, I pray that you will put a hedge around that thing. I, got, I pray that as I tr keep trying to go back to this issue, this sin, this thing that I participate in, let it not be fun anymore. Let it prick me. Let it hurt me. So I go, that's a bummer. I don't wanna do it. I wanna do what God has for me because that always leads to joy and fulfillment and happiness and this stinks. And so verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Abner says, hey, I've got influence. I've got connections. I know how the politics work. We can expedite this whole king thing and just get you on the throne already. And here's how David responds, verse 13. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is you shall not see my face, until, unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter. When you come to see my face, then David sent messengers to Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, for whom I pay, paid the bridal price of a 100 foreskins of the Philistines. 
And Ish-bosheth sent and took her from her husband, Padiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. So David, he's willing to meet with Abner, but he wants his first wife back. This is a wife that Saul had promised to him if he could bring body parts of some Philistines, thinking that David would go into battle and be crushed and wouldn't be Saul's problem anymore. David instead brought back double the amount of body parts to Saul and won the daughter. And Saul was at first a little worried about that. Then he got angry about that and tried to kill David. And it was Michael who got David out of the house, hid him out to to flee from Saul. Then Saul married Michael off to another man. What a bummer for Michael, right? This is Saul's evil, just with compound interest. How harsh, how horrible, how difficult is this for his daughter? This is now the second marriage that's going to be ruined because of her dad's decisions. Because of her dad's issues, her dad's insecurities, her dad's problems, this is the second relationship that's broken. And now there's a young man who's hurt. Now there's a woman who's hurt. There's a second marriage that's completely destroyed. This is the compound interest of Saul's evil choices. And so in verse 17, and Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So Abner's really putting in the legwork to make his covenant good with David. Like, this guy can get stuff done. He's not just all talk like a lot of politicians. This man puts in the legwork, meets with people. We're getting a new king, getting people behind it. Here's what we're doing. Seems like a good ally for David to have. And so verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you. And that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So they come together, they eat, things are good. There's a plan for the future. David's gonna officially be made king soon and he's gonna have the blessing of the super influential member of Saul's regime. So this is awesome. Like this just seems like for David, hey, the war's coming to an end. The natural conclusion to how this should end is, is finally coming here. I'm, I'm gonna be reunited with my wife, who is Saul's daughter. So for a lot of people, that will kind of make sense. I'll be part of the, that family again. Okay, so that'll work. I've got the backing of his right-hand man. Everything's falling into place. And then verse 22. Just then... The servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. 
Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Joab is this mighty warrior and he ends up becoming a general in King David's armies. And Joab has got a pretty good reason to not like Abner. Because in the previous chapter, Joab and his two brothers are chasing after Abner and Abner kills Joab's brother. So they, they've got, there's some history there. And it says he hits him with the butt of the spear. Maybe it was unintentional that he died. Maybe it was intentional. All we know is he died. Joab is bent against Abner, does not like him. And he's frustrated that he came to meet with David and David let him leave. And so verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashiel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashiel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So Joab strikes down Abner and David is reasonably and rightfully, he's pretty upset by it because there was a plan. We, we had a, a thing that we were doing. Things were about to go down that Joab didn't know about. Justice could have been brought about if you were just a little bit more patient, if you could have just waited to see what the plan was, but instead you took it upon, upon yourself and now David is essentially in the same spot as he was before Abner. He just has his wife back. And in verse 31 then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed, verse 31, and King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as everything the king did pleased all the people. Wouldn't it be nice? That'd just be nice. Everything the king did pleased everybody. What a fascinating text to say about any world leader, right? Any nation leader. Everybody loved everything he did. That's pretty cool. That, that's some high praise. Verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. 
And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. How many times has getting revenge ever made something right? Like ever got total justice? When you and I say, man, I know how to solve it. All we have to do is just do this. All we have to do is just, just get payback. All we have to do is just make it right. I know it needs to get done. We need less talking. We need more action. And if you've ever been like severely wronged, if you've ever been really, truly hurt by someone, you felt that. So there was this girl, there's a story, and I've shared it before. This girl in the South, many years ago, different time, she's seven, six, seven years old. She comes home and she tells her parents, on my way home from school today, there was a boy and he got, he, he, he lured me behind this grocery store and he did things he shouldn't have done. The parents are rightfully livid. They're totally upset. So they go and they get their neighbors and all the neighbors agree, yeah, not in our town. We're not gonna let this happen. No way. So they go get this boy and they drag him out of his parents' house and they beat this kid and they hang him in the middle of town for everyone to see because they're saying, we're not gonna stand for this kind of behavior, these kind of actions in our city. And for a lot of the people, most of the people involved, they would say, that's justice. That got taken care of. We're not doing that. This is a, a, a symbol for everybody to see we don't stand for that kind of garbage here. Well, it was last year, that girl, who's now much older, she was on her deathbed and she was dying and she needed to share something that was on her heart and it's that he never touched her. That what actually happened is she was at school and his sister's dresses were more prettier than hers and so she decided that she would go and make an accusation and and ruin their whole life. And so then you have to think about this poor boy's parents, how there's never been justice for them. That th their kid got ripped out of their house for reasons they'd never understood. No, no, my kid was, there was no trial. There was no evidence. This thing just happened and their story was never heard or what, what a bummer. Because all of these people didn't have all the information, didn't see things the right way, didn't know everything, but they believed they did. They sought for justice in their way, and it was wrong. And man, how many times when I'm upset and angry and I'm amped up, do I probably make those same choices? Because I'm not gonna be patient. Being patient is me saying, I know everything. I've got all the information. I know what's right. That's being impatient, so I'm gonna go ahead and handle it. Patient is saying, I don't know everything. I don't know what's right. I bet you God knows something I don't know, and I'm gonna wait on God for it. What the Christian is supposed to do is we're supposed to, in moments where it's, it's stressful and it's hard, and you're, you hear that the king has just met with Abner, the man who killed your brother, and you hate him. He's been sent away, and you don't understand it, and that's so frustrating, that's so irritating. What the believer's supposed to do is really, really hard, but we're supposed to, in those moments of tribulation and of hardship and of frustration and anger, we're supposed to trust in God in three ways. I, patiently, and that's saying, okay, I may not know everything and I'm gonna give up this idea that I do know everything and that I can get it handled and I know what's going on and I'm gonna trust to wait on God even if that's so hard. 
I'm gonna choose to wait on God because I bet you he knows more than me. So it's, we're supposed to trust in God patiently. We're supposed to trust in God perspectively, which is saying God sees things that I don't. There's this text in Habakkuk where everything is going wrong for the prophet Habakkuk. Like he's looking at Israel saying, this is terrible. Everything is going as wrong as it could possibly go. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And what Habakkuk says right before God responds to him, he says, I'm gonna go stand on the ramparts. I'm gonna go get above the city. I'm gonna go take watch. I'm gonna go seek you up there. What he's saying is, my current perspective down here isn't working. I need a higher perspective. I need to get up somewhere high to see if maybe the enemy is doing something. If maybe there's an attack coming against me, I need to go get a different perspective. And so that, that's what we're called to do as believers. When we trust in the Lord, we're saying, I need a different perspective, God. I might not be seeing things the way you see things. I, I know that you see things I don't. God, can you help open my eyes? God, can you help me see this person the way that you see them? God, can you help me understand the situation the way you understand it? And you might not get your answer right then and there, but we're called to seek that kind of perspective. So it's patiently, we're supposed to trust God patiently, we're supposed to trust God perspectively, and we're supposed to trust God Christ-centeredly. And that's this, when you're looking at yourself in your own life and you're able to actually see my sins, the things that I've done, my compounding interest of evil has probably hurt somebody in a way that I don't even know the way that I'm feeling right now about this person. That I've caused situations, I've caused issues that have had a ripple effect that I may not even understand or I may be completely aware of them that have so devastated somebody in their soul the way that I'm devastated and hurt right now. But my God has been so generous with me He's been so kind to me. He's been so forgiving to me. If my God has done those things for me, maybe I can do those things for this person. When you're able to really believe in a God of justice, that he's so serious about sin, our God is so serious about sin that Jesus said, if there's any other way that this cup could pass from me, if there's any other way that sin could be paid for other than God being beaten and brutalized and murdered. If there's any other way, let's do that. And God said, no, he's so serious about every sin being paid for that either it's paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross or it will be paid by every other person on, with their own blood. If you truly believe in a God of perfect justice like Jesus is, you'll be able to say, okay, God, I give it to you. This is yours to handle because you see things that I don't. You know things that I don't. You know that there's something going on in the background that you're working a plan, you have a purpose, and I don't need to get revenge. I don't need to hurt that person. I don't need to see that person's pain and illness and issues. I can trust, okay, God, you're working something better than I could ever imagine. And I'm gonna believe you in that. I'm gonna be patient. I'm gonna wait on the Lord. God, you're working something together. I'm gonna get perspective. God, help me see things the way you see things. And I'm gonna be Christ-centered and God, I know you've forgiven me of way worse. I know that you've seen the depths of my soul and you've forgiven me for those things that, that may not even have come out. You've forgiven me of that. Help me to forgive as generously as you've forgiven me. And so guys, this week, we're all gonna have opportunities to do little things that will grow in compound interest. We'll, we'll have opportunities to get frustrated at people and let them know about it. Or you're gonna have opportunities to forgive. You're gonna have opportunities to get upset at someone. You're gonna have opportunities to give a kid a cup of water. You're gonna have an opportunity right now with 500 kids to tell them, hey, you are so handsome. 
Little, little, little things. Little compounding interest things that can really matter and, and change someone's life. For so many of us, we have the opportunity to invest in our kids and make sure that they know, you know what happened to the king's son. Do you know what Jesus has done for you? Do you know this is the only thing that matters? For so many of us that we have kids who are out of the house, we have so many kids here who need men and women who love Jesus, who call Jesus Lord, who will invest in them, who will put in just a little bit of time and a little bit of effort, who will trust that God is gonna take that little bit and it's gonna compound and it's gonna grow. And that kid, we just pray, would, would be just ignited into a believer that's beyond any of us here. That would be the next hero of the faith. We have the opportunity for that every single day. We are such a lucky church as Edgewater. We have so many kids who are so excited to learn about the Lord and we have such a great opportunity to invest in them. I just pray this week you'll find a way that God will show you this is how he wants me to invest today. My time, my money, my effort, so I could see that compounding interest grow for Jesus's kingdom here in Grants Pass. Jesus, will your kingdom come through the actions that I'm gonna participate in today? Let's let that be our prayer. So Jesus, we do pray that your kingdom would come here in Grants Pass, that your will would be done here as it is in heaven. We pray for our kids who have learned about you tonight, Lord, that that, that effort of the teachers teaching them about who you are would grow. That it'd be transformative. That it'd be so influential and, 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 and a cornerstone of who they are is, is Jesus, is their king, is their savior, and is their God, and is their friend. And Jesus, I pray for us that we wouldn't let the small things go, that we would sweat the small stuff that we would be worried about compounding interest, that we would be seeing that today is a battlefield and that we've got opportunities to set up your kingdom for great things and we have opportunities to lose areas for the enemy to attack. And I pray that we'd be on our guard. So Jesus, we are so thankful to be called your people. We're so thankful that we know what happened to the king's son. I pray that we'd be good stewards with the time and with the resources that you've given to us. Help us see the good of that grow with compound interest. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.